The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) What's that sound you hear? Knock, knock. It's through the glass columns. And we are here to finish up a book which we never do oh okay we do it once every season but here we are uh closing out with two chapters from the dragon reborn of course we are your weekly read-along wheel of time podcast i am greg who is on a just sugar high of euphoria because i got to read the end of a book and i never get to do that (laughs) and joining me is tyler who is just here and not so much on a sugar high tyler what's going on uh i don't understand when you say I'm not on a sugar high. We just, one, finished a Wheel of Time book, and that's my jam. And two, we are about to start The Shadow Rising, which let me tell you, those of you who in real time have to wait three weeks for the next episode that covers real chapters, oh my God, if you thought this was good, just wait. It's coming. (laughs) I am pumped, I guess is what I am saying here. You're on a sugar rush. I am just excited about everything that is happening in podcast world, including I think society has decided we can declare any anniversary as meaningful, right? Like we get like the 43rd anniversary edition of of media properties now. So I think we should celebrate our our year and a half anniversary. Three books. I feel like it's a milestone. You're 20% of the way through this series. Yay. Uh, very excited to be 20% of the way, even though that really doesn't sound like that much. Um, but uh, page count wise, are we maybe a little ahead of that? Uh, probably not. Um, so you don't have those stats off the top of your head. I, I both don't have those stats off the top of my head, but I know that there are like seven books longer than all of the ones we've read and only one that is dramatically shorter. So my guess is on average, we have actually not read 20% by word count. Uh, Fair enough. Well, uh, before we get too ahead, I wanted to take your natural segue just to remind people what our schedule is coming up. So today we are discussing the last two chapters and the tiny little bit at the end of The Dragon Reborn. Uh, And then we will be back next week uh, to do just a kind of general book discussion wrap up. Um, This had previously been kind of combined with the chapters, but we wanted to separate them out this time, try something new. Um, And we also have some visual discussion tonight that was going to take up some of the airtime. After that episode, we will disappear from your feeds for the holidays uh, because, uh, you know, it's a busy time of year. And I, I get that we all want to read Wheel of Time books instead of talking to family. But go ahead, be a little extroverted, talk to somebody who loves you. Uh, and then we will return shortly after New Year's 2024 uh, and begin the Shadow Rising. As Tyler said, it'll be about three weeks without us. Um and honestly, what a better way, what better way to to ring in the new year. Now, if you're listening far in the future, none of this means anything. So ignore all of it. The next episodes will just be in your your uh, feed and in your list. But we are very excited for season four, but we are not getting there until we wrap up season three. So first, Tyler, uh, we have two different uh, art discussions today, and I will go ahead and tell the audience that the first one requires a little Googling unless you are reading the right edition of the book. So Tyler, tell people what to Google slash what to look at. 
Yes. Yeah, so the first image that we are going to be discussing today is the original cover of the Dragon Reborn. So if you search Dragon Reborn cover, this is the image you will find. I will note, however, that what you are most likely to see if you simply go to the first image that pops up is you will see the front cover of the Dragon Reborn, which depicts Rand reaching towards Kalendor with both Matt and Perrin in the foreground. If you go digging, just maybe like five or six images later, you will see the full wraparound image, which has that on the far right, and then a creepy Beelzeman face that goes along the spine of the book in the paperback edition. Mm -hmm. And then on the back, where you would get the blurb, wrapped around it were images of several Aiel hiding behind the redstone columns. So this is an image that, depending on which part you look at, there's a lot of different things going on in it. Um, but it's actually one that I don't have too much disdain for, which is relatively rare among the original covers, because it actually depicts something that happened in the book relatively accurately. And other than Perrin looking like he belongs in the Conan books, this rings pretty <laughs> true in a way that often the original covers don't. What was your thought upon viewing this image for the first time? Because it's obviously not the cover that you had seen possibly ever. I don't know how exposed you were to the original art before even though you hadn't read the books uh not at all uh and this continues to look like the hildebrandt brothers to me who i'm familiar with from their lord of the rings and some star wars art um and i will just plug uh hopefully i remember but uh tyler has provided me with an image of exactly what we're discussing so if you need it you can go to the instagram account for through the glass columns which is just at through the glass columns uh, is it i don't yeah. know search instagram uh for it i i was suddenly panicked that it was too long one of our social media accounts that was too long um and so you can find us uh find our account and and see the image there uh boy you got me excited just a second ago because you almost said through the red columns uh which is so close to what our podcast is called and yet yeah. not so um you know this this is definitely kind of old school cheesy kind of van art but yeah. um it's not bad it's 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 among the the less uh, offensive there so um especially with your context that this would wrap around the spine it actually strikes me as more clever than i originally thought and i can see exactly what you mean that the face would appear kind of nicely on the spine yeah. um making the cover actually very star wars right this looks like yeah. the original a new hope poster where luke is holding up a a yellow lightsaber for some reason um and uh yet it's like a kylo ren uh lightsaber uh so yeah. maybe it was pre uh prefiguring that <laughs> um but uh it you know, it's got the excitement. It's got the thrills. Uh, you know, I'm not one to go for a muscly ripped dude uh, kind of bulging out on uh, the image. But hey, if if that's your thing, we got one. And his name is uh, Matt. Is that who that one is? I, yes. But I, the axe is Matt. No, the axe is Perrin. Matt is the, no, the axe is Perrin. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't entirely get Perrin at all on this image. I tend to think the front cover is very good, but not great. And mostly because I think the, you know, kind of background, the thing that we're primarily focusing on, Rand and the Sword, is fantastic. And then both Matt and Perrin just don't look like Matt and Perrin to me. I get absolutely nothing out of creepy face on the spine. But I think the Aiel <laughs> on the back is really well done. I think it they look, mm. um, they look like a desert culture, you can tell that they're designed to be kind of like blending in with a particular pattern that does not fit this at all. They get the weapons right, which is something that very rarely happens on these original covers. They're often just kind of generic fantasy uh, soldiers. And, you know, at least we don't have any Trollocs here that are depicted as just humans in helmets with horns. So we're doing better than the second cover uh, on the original books. Um, overall, I think I'm kind of with you. This is old school. It's not my favorite, but for the old school covers, this is about as good as it gets, um, at least as far as I'm concerned. It, it accurately depicts the book, which is a major win. Um, any other thoughts that you have about this cover? I think we included it mostly because we want to make sure we talk about every one of the original covers, but they're not my favorite. Anything to add before we move <laughs> on to our second ill-advised discussion of visual media in a single episode? Uh, I will just say I do like the back cover's depth. Um, it does yeah. look something like um, the 
the dwarf halls from from Lord of the Rings films or old old art. Um, and I just like the the depth to make the stone seem very large and cavernous. So that's that's working for me. But yes, take us on Faithful Tyler. So we are, of course, this week discussing uh I already forgot the numbers. Uh 55 and 56. 55 and 56. So we're gonna start with chapter 55, what is written in prophecy, and our second uh discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast is uh the chapter icon for chapter 55, which is a brand spanking new one. Wow. So talk to us. Uh well, actually, I was gonna throw it to you, but usually you have me describe what I see and what I can think about. So I'll just continue on to say what we have here is a uh probably the largest icon. I can recall us seeing yep. thus far, which is a dragon that has uh, busted out of the frame uh, quite large. Um, and so we have both its tail and its head and kind of front legs uh, totally outside the square icon of the chapter. Now, notable features here, I would say first and foremost, the five claws on each of the feet of the dragon are specifically rendered yeah. in a splayed fashion so that you can easily count all five on every one of the four paws. And then I would also note it's it is kind of an eastern dragon if I yeah. were to kind of characterize the the dragon. And what's striking to me is it is a dark dragon uh with very light accent lines and in the inside the square it is actually also filled in black. So yeah. this is a very dark image from those we have seen and that's something we often track is is where is the balance of color very much on the on the black and uh of the spectrum and kind of filling even more of the page than it yet usually does so i might not guess that given that we yeah. do see this in the chapters we read tonight i actually think it's the second one uh, but um we we are seeing this as, uh, I assume, the symbol for Rand, yeah. and to have it be so dark is striking. How yeah, did I, I do? I think really well. I think the thing that's interesting to me is everything you said, especially about the contrast between light and dark in this image, I think is exactly spot on. You described it well. It is an extremely dark image. It's a black border with a black dragon and a black background, and the only white is the lines between it. And yet somehow I don't look at this image and immediately think that screams really dark because both sides of it have broken outside of that box. And so to me, that is really the defining feature of this is that it's a really, really dark icon that has almost managed to like break out of or escape that darkness. And as an icon for Rand, who is simultaneously like the hero of the world and potentially destined to go insane, I think that's a really interesting kind of place to start is is, you know, a really dark image that has almost kind of broken through those boundaries into the light a bit more than uh, we might originally look just looking at the center of the icon. Um, but no, I think that that contrast is exactly what this is going for. Um, I have nothing else to say other than really solid guess. This is absolutely Rand's new chapter icon. We had talked before about the Heron Marks Blade being a temporary icon for him. Welcome to his more permanent chapter icon. Um, and to your point, I will also note that while when we discuss light and dark contrasts on these icons, we often talk about dark as in like evil dark side. Yeah. Dark is also just sidene. Yes. yes. Pause for Tyler's nod. So we know that that's the male kind of part of the one power and that that is not necessarily evil in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a lot of mythologies that have to do with balance and that, you know, one side needs to be counteracted by the other. So while we have often likened darkness to the evil one, to the dark friends, all yeah. of that, that stuff, it could just be that this is just an expression of him being the kind of figurehead of the Sidene, the yeah. more delicious half of the black and white cookie. 
Um, we need to split a black and white cookie sometime because apparently we have different <laughs> opinions about what is the more delicious side. Uh, but I have nothing to add other than that. I think that's exactly right, is that this is a series that plays around with light and dark in a lot of different ways, both in terms of kind of degrees of lightness and darkness, but then also that idea that what is kind of viewed by society as dark is not necessarily the same as what is actually evil or bad. Um, this transitions into not really a third ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast, but something that needs to at least be vaguely mentioned, I suppose. We have referenced my tattoo several times, and at this point, we now have all of the chapter icons that comprise that tattoo. It is Rand's mm. dragon on the top, and then Matt's dice and Perrin's wolf in the middle, and then the eye of, I'm sorry, the um, wheel of time image that ends most chapters at the bottom. And so it's kind of my tattoo tattoo for the three boys the three major characters i don't know if anyone actually cares to see it but greg will probably post it on social media maybe i don't know if that's weird what's that um yep i just got a call from instagram headquarters and they say they want a shirtless photo of tyler that's what the people that's... demand and okay hey yeah. if you all like pale let's get pale <laughs> <laughs> Even my ha hair has abandoned any pigment, y'all. It is pale <laughs> up in here. Uh, that being said, there is no need for commentary on my tattoo. Why don't we drive straight into chapter 55, what is written in prophecy? So the chapter begins with a Rand POV, which is new for this book. Uh, he enters the heart of the stone and sees Kalendor. Uh, Belal approaches and tells him to take it. Rand recognizes him from his dreams and says that he has dreamed of Belal putting the girls in a cage. Um, Belal seems to kind of constantly be, um, A, surprised at how little Rand knows. He seems to have suspected that Luz Theron, as he refers to him, would know more. He seems to think that Rand is significantly misunderstanding parts of the conversation or what's going on. In particular, whenever the conversation turns to Bayalzaman, Belal seems kind of dismissive very quickly. And then it becomes apparent that Belal is trying to stretch out this fight as long as possible until Rand grabs for Kalan. Door. Um, he forces him into a corner, makes it so he is about to uh, reach for Kalendor, and then Moraine arrives. Um, she uh, basically gets laughed off by Bilal and then immediately murders him with Balefire. It happens very quickly, and I appreciate it. Um, she, however, is very quickly after telling Rand to take Kalendor, she is then enveloped in lightning from a pool of darkness around her from which Baalzaman emerges. Rand does manage to take Kalendor before he is overwhelmed, and then he touches the power and Kalendor begins to gl uh, glow brightly enough that it is blinding him and then Baalzaman flees. Rand copies whatever Baalzaman did to leave and then thinks to himself, I am the hunter now. Um, we are then in Egwene's POV. She feels the stone shaking while she is in Teleron Riode. At first she uh, despairs at not being able to find the cell that she and the others are in in the waking world, but then she sees that the Aes Sedai who is watching over her, Amiko, seems to be drifting off into sleep while using a Tarangriel, and so she is making her way uh, kind of driftingly into the world of dreams. Um, when she comes back in for a second time, Egwene puts a shield around her and thinks that must have stopped her from being able to have a shield or to channel in either the waking world or the world of dreams. Egwene then tries to break the lock on the cell and uh, wakes up. When she is then awake, she is within the cell. They try to open the door. It is not open, but the other girls do say that Amiko did cry out and so whatever was done to her in the world of dreams did have some effect. They still can't channel. The shield is still there and so Egwene says that she needs to get back to sleep and she won't be able to unless Nynaeve sings to her. Um, we then jump into Matt's POV. Uh, Matt and Julin are carefully traversing the stone trying to make sure that they don't get seen by any other high lords. They are in a torture chamber it appears and then um, they see a, a woman who seems to be awake but also asleep um, she is saying, help me, and it appears that she can only move from the neck up. This is Amiko, who has been kind of oddly affected by being shielded in the world of dreams while only partially there. Um, Matt and uh, Julin are then able to open the cell, let out the girls to their shock. Um, and Matt and them basically get into a sparring match about whether he deserves thanks 
and they eventually decide, yeah, probably kind of. Um, they knock out Amiko, um, and then they are no longer shielded. They can channel. Nynaeve heals the other girls. Matt says that they need to leave immediately, but they seem intent on tracking down the Black Aja, and while Matt is trying to talk them out of doing anything, they run off and he follows, saying he is going to keep them safe. We then switch into Perrin's POV. He is still searching for Fayil, which is how he is now referring to her in the narration. Uh, he has rescued her two times already in the world of dreams, um, and he uh, sees Rand, but uh, he quickly kind of disappears away from him. Um, Hopper warns Perrin of being here too strongly, and then Perrin says that no, he is going to find Fayil, whatever the cost, and then uses his hammer to destroy a brass door that he finds. He sees a falcon and breaks the chain holding it. He then wakes up, bleeding from all of the wounds that he has suffered in the world of dreams, and Fayil is able to wake with him and calls him her wolf, and he calls her, or her blacksmith, I'm sorry, and he calls her, her his falcon, and then we cut into Rand's POV again. He is in an empty heart of the stone that is different and not quite the same. He doesn't quite realize that he is in Teleron Riode. Uh, he barely avoids Balefire that is thrown at him from Baalzaman, but it doesn't seem to affect Kalendor. In fact, it bounces off of it. Rand then pursues him and uh, kind of repeatedly is either killing uh, Trollocs or Murdrail, or doesn't seem to understand what's going on, but the air around him turns into water and he fights it off, or the ground below him turns into mud and he fights it off. Um, he then arrives back in the heart of the stone uh, and battles Baalzaman again, killing him with Kalendor. Uh, the body falls to the ground and then um, he says uh, something along the lines of fool, the great lord can never be defeated. Rand thinks he has won, returns to the real world, raises Kalendor and the crowds begin cheering and crying out that Althor is the dragon. Wow, that was a long summary. I really need just a drink or a pause or you to have your own thing where you have to talk for five minutes. So just say words for a minute and then I'll get back in on the conversation. I was going to use the, the joke where I just end the show uh, because I think I've used that before when you have very long things. Um, wow, what a climax. And um, I guess I will say I found it moved very, very quickly. And I think, yeah. you know, how much you just talked is is a credit to that, that so, so much happens in this. And I do think, as opposed to usual, when we have a plot-heavy chapter, I feel like we could pick out any single vignette of this and talk for a good 40 yeah. minutes on some of them. Um, but I will say, you know, kind of my general notes to myself were just like, last week we uh, I referenced Dunkirk as kind of that intercutting plots that quickens as they all yeah. converge. And this just felt like it was, you know, dialed up to 11. And we got mm -hmm. even more of that with uh, actual convergence of, of all these plot lines coming together and these characters overlapping. And as we jumped between them, I found myself getting a little, um, I, I would say disoriented, but not like unproductively. So like yeah. actually in the literal sense, like I needed to orient myself in each one. And I, once I did, I felt good. I actually, <laughs> as I was reading uh, these chapters, accidentally skipped a page. Two of my pages stuck together and mm. it took me a long time to realize it. Cause in the world of dreams, I was like, Oh yeah, Perrin is watching Rand do all of the things. This makes sense. So I think that's kind of intentional by Robert Jordan, right? It's bouncing around so quickly. It is kind of hard to keep track of all the balls that are in the air in this chapter. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is Robert Jordan is not just wrapping up in this chapter. He is laying a lot of like subtle, small hints at things that will come later that I think are really easy to mid miss amongst the action. But like just in this first section, if nothing else, uh, we get a lot of hints from Belal about the things that Rand may be misunderstanding or that the readers are misunderstanding, right? There's a lot of talk about Luz Theron not remembering and about um, Belal thinking that um, Baelzaman is not uh, whoever Rand thinks uh, he is. More on that in the next chapter. But the fact that we're getting so much kind of dense world building in the midst of the chapter wrapping up, or in the of the book wrapping up, I think is what to me stood out so much about this section. Um, did you have anything to say about this early section of the chapter where I feel like we get kind of an oddly large amount of world building for the climactic action sequence of the book, basically? Um, 
no, I was going to make a dirty joke about your pages being stuck together. Like, wow, you really do look like Wheel of Time. But that's beneath <laughs> us. That's uh, immature. So we should not pause for that. Yeah, how uh, dare you even think and... about making that joke? <laughs> that is definitely going to make it into the final cut. Continue. <laughs> um, And so, you know, then the game in my head becomes which of these details matters. Yeah. And so... Moraine showing up and kind of instantly killing a Forsaken who has just told us essentially like, wow, you really don't get it if you are worried about Baalzaman. Yeah. Is the kind of like deep tease that feels like it matters. Like, you know, that's a you know nothing, Jon Snow, except then the character is killed off and can't reveal kind of what's really going on. Yeah. Um. Within that, that seems very much related to the fact that, you know, Louis, Louis Theron continues to be something, someone they all know and are all waiting for. And a reminder that Rand may be ascending to be the Dragon Reborn, but really hasn't caught up with that identity of his. Yeah of the last dragon. And so that those two problems seem intertwined in my mind. I'm making a very good intertwined gesture with my hand to continue our visual references tonight. Um, So I think of the kind of opening sections, that's the deep tease I was interested in, in learning more about in future books. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the moment that really works the best for me in that kind of like uh, really well gestured intertwining that you were uh, describing there uh, is there's a moment where um, Bilal is kind of taunting Rand and trying to goad him into taking Kalendor. Um, and there's a moment where um, Bilal literally refers to him as Luz Theron. And then I think like literally the next line is when uh, Rand basically thinks to himself, what if I try to reach for Kalendor and there is a wall that prevents me from touching it? And that I found to be a, a really interesting moment because there are a lot of things I expected Rand to be kind of doubtful about here, right? Like, is he already crazy? Is he going to destroy the world? Is he going to die in the battle against the Dark One? All of these things make sense to me, but am I the Dragon Reborn is not the doubt that I expected him to bring into this final confrontation. So I was really surprised, even on like a fifth reread, that that was the thing he was focusing on so much in, in that battle. Did that stand out to you, or was there anything else in kind of Rand's monologue throughout this sequence that was, was interesting as we were working through it because it is the first time we've really been in his head in a, in a real way for most of the book well and it it i guess my reaction is to say it was most interesting for not being interesting it's like he hadn't changed yeah. a lot i think because of all the ways in which he existed in rumor and hearsay across the last 400 pages he could have returned kind of monstrous or superpowered or something like that and it just kind of felt like rand again and like you're saying when he doubts it it's like okay he's still just a boy from the two rivers and needs to you know uh still assert himself if he's going to take it over and maybe we see that happen over the course of this chapter but especially early rand just felt like rand again so yeah way to way to not let the world change you buddy Yeah, and I guess if what we're saying is Rand is Rand is Rand, then the big change in the early section of this book is when Moraine arrives and goes full Danny DeVito meme. So anyway, I started blasting, right? Like she arrives and 10 (laughs) seconds later, there is a dead Forsaken. And I think you already referenced this, but I think it was maybe three or four weeks ago when Moraine basically declared out of nowhere, apropos of nothing, I am much more dangerous than I once was. And this felt like the simplest summation of that that if we are thinking of rand as kind of ascending into this place of you know kind of globally important power moraine is already there she just doesn't have the title Mm. and you know because of how she presented that i think of um i guess it's uh galadriel says that the fellowship stands on the edge of a knife um and, and it feels like that's where moraine is it's like you know, we we have a different trajectory for her on the show, so I don't want to necessarily equate those two, but it does feel like she herself has said, I'm in a very dangerous place. You essentially just allude to the fact she's kind of trigger happy, right? I mean, yeah. 
this is a, a classic movie thing where like the guy is about to explain like the the next step and who's the boss and who's behind the scheme and the rookie cop just comes in and blasts him away yep. blows him away with a shotgun and yet it's Moraine and that is not a rookie that is somebody who should know more than anybody else yep. and so then my question becomes did she just take him out because she had she had the shot and it was a four uh forsaken Forsaken, yes uh um or did she take him out purposefully so he could not reveal something that she doesn't think rand is ready to know yet that to me sounds like dumbledore right dumbledore always Mm -hmm. is like i wasn't quite ready for harry to know and moraine has played that role before so i think it's possible that that could be true here yeah, and I cannot respond to that in any meaningful way without giving away <laughs> hints. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say about the Rand section, right? I think we set up Rand as a character who, as you say, is in many ways very different, but in a lot of important ways is exactly the same as he has been. And then we're also setting up Moraine as just being in a very different position than we saw her before, right? Like you said, trigger happy rather than kind of cautious and waiting, and also just over her head so much in this book. Um, That then leads us into our next set of characters, the girls, as I often refer to them, even though obviously they are the women. Um, Egwene in this section, she is experimenting and she's trying new things and she's doing things that she doesn't know what they're going to do and they have results that would be absolutely horrific if they happened to anyone other than a member of the Black Aja. I don't have any like big coherent thoughts here other than like this is the most kind of this is the least exciting of the three plots if you will and I'm not sure if Robert Jordan did enough for me to like win me over to this being as into integral as the other few sections we're going to get later on towards kind of finishing this story i think uh you know i'm gonna just play my old card which is to say i found it a little confusing as we skipped between the planes right to go from the real world to teleron riyadh and um I just couldn't always wrap my head around what was happening where. So my big takeaway from it would be just that the effects that are bleeding between them should not be happening in the way they are happening, which usually means as powerfully as they're happening, right? What happens in one place should not happen in the other. But Egwene and perhaps her tear angry all are driving this and making it so she can do whatever she wants and really affect the two. And that starts to feel powerful in a different way. So I do want to be really careful with that, which is that Egwene seems to be able to affect other people in the world of dreams in a really powerful way that maybe isn't what we expected. But it is worth noting she breaks the lock in the world of dreams and then wakes up and the lock is fully intact in the real world. So Mm -hmm. there are still some kind of limitations on what she can do and what it affects. But at least in terms of the interaction between her channeling in the world of dreams and that affecting Amiko in the real world the effect seems to be unpredictable and as you say kind of new and different from what we've you know maybe seen or heard of before so i think it's exactly right to be thinking how much of this is Egwene that's odd and how much of it is that we don't know anything about the world of dreams and how much of it is that amiko was using a weird uh, terangrial that we don't know anything about but i think you're right this is a new mystery that's being put here how does the world of dreams affect the real world and we get kind of mixed results in this chapter um, and I think I predicted last week or maybe the week before that, like, oh, good, we have to go save Fael in the world of dreams and Egwene will be there and be really active. And though those plot lines overlap, they really were kind yeah. of separate and that it wasn't that we ended up with those characters converging there. Um, so that was a surprise. I don't really have positive or negative feelings about it. It's just like, oh, well, you know, took a stab. It didn't yeah. work out that way. Everything you just said there caused me in a way that I will in no way elaborate on to immediately like flash forward to book 13. So I have no cogent thoughts that don't spoil things, but it's (laughs) it's foreshadowing really well. You guys, I promise only 10 more books. Um, to me, then I, you should okay. always remember there are re readers listening who appreciate you and appreciate <laughs> that 
kind of line. So never hesitate to make the comment. And if we have listeners who like me are here the first for the first read, um, yeah, he's an annoying, pompous jerk, but it's entertaining to some people. <laughs> yeah, it's entertaining to some people like me and also me. <laughs> That's really what I'm here for. Um, I think for me, the two really interesting things that stood out to me in this section is one, we already kind of vaguely discussed, we don't know how it works, but the oddity of how to shielding someone who's asleep and it affecting them when they're awake is is very, very weird. Um, the other one that I found really interesting was at the end of this section. So if you have anything before that, please jump in. But after we had spent so much time in this uh, book talking about the conflict between Egwene and Nynaeve and what was causing it and why was it so severe and how was Elaine mediating it and was the slap necessary? And yes, the slap was definitely necessary. Like there was a lot going on with that conflict in this book and we don't really get a direct resolution of it, but we do get Egwene asking Nynaeve to hum to her like she did when she was a little girl. And that feels like the best we're going to get and it's it's a touching moment even if i'm not sure it entirely fits with the way that conflict was portrayed prior to it but i i appreciate it what what did you think about the end of this sequence um i i think sweet is right um actually what came to mind was the end of the grapes of wrath which i won't elaborate on but like yeah. this kind of moment of shared humanity kind of deep in this crisis was was lovely and nice it did feel at well maybe i'll save some of this for next week but it does feel like if we look at their plot line on the whole it's like oh crap we didn't have enough to do let's give them a conflict and then just have it kind of yeah. end in a whimper at the end and you know there are worse crimes um <laughs> happening in in fiction all the time but it, it doesn't ultimately move me all that much yeah, I will say this is something that works really well. I think if you are reading the first three books straight through in like a um, couple months, because I think then you are seeing the the progression go from Nynaeve as the wisdom and Egwene as, you know, the girl who was her apprentice to the um, accepted novice, but kind of on the same level to both of them accepted to Egwene then going back to that original dynamic and kind of asking, you know, will you be that kind of mother figure that you were when I was young? Right? I think that works really well if you see that progression go quickly, but when you break it into to a year and a half of you know two chapter chunks i think you lose that through line a little bit and then it just feels like you said like it's it's kind of tossed in we needed a resolution here's a resolution right i think it, it resonates better the more you kind of look at it as a whole but there's a part of me that says then robert jordan needs to make us look at it as a whole a little better either in the early sections of this book or in the description here yeah and um, uh, that makes sense to me. And, and, you know, I think it's always good when you, you can point out ways in which the experience that we're going through kind of hurts the experience. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and so I, I will readily acknowledge that. And there is, I think there's always a sweetness to a character reverting to a childlike stage. Yeah. Although like when people in my life do that. I just want to like bust heads because it's annoying. But in a book, it's like really endearing. And and I was yeah. actually I was just in my head daydreaming about Harry Potter and kind of the the image of Hagrid carrying Harry uh, deep into mm. book seven is kind of that same like, well, you know, you can grow up and you can mature, but some part of you still needs to be taken care of. So yeah. it is kind of beautiful. Absolutely. That was a lovely note to end that section on. Let's talk about Matt and <laughs> all of the Matt things, right? I think that for me, number one, we just need to recognize I, this is the first time I've seen it in a single chapter where it was this stark. We went from the Egwene section kind of feeling like, oh, this is touching, this works, to immediately Matt with like quips and jokes and he is telling us <laughs> things and immediately contradicting them. Like Matt just reads different and I appreciate it every time we transition to a, a Matt chapter. Um, or in this case, a mat, you know, page and a half. That being said, nothing happens in this section. Matt walks through <laughs> a hallway and then sees a lady and doesn't know what happened to her, even though the reader does. And then the girls don't thank him. And that's most of this section. What, what was your take on Matt's ending in this book? 
I I feel like he had his his big moment last week, so yeah. it's okay that you know that's the heroic action and this kind of moment of you know there's there's some good comedy and like I'm here yeah. I saved you and they're like yep whatever let's move on um so that that was kind of amusing but I I think he he got his big boom moment last yeah. week and and now it's just kind of he's already in in a denouement mode uh, as as he wraps up his his uh, yeah. plot. Yeah, I think then if we're not super interested in the mat of it all, right, he's fun to read, but there's not a ton for him here. I think you're exactly right. I hadn't thought that his big moment was last week, but that's spot on. Um, to me, then, Nynaeve gets the spotlight in the second half of this section because she gets to knock out Amiko and talk over Matt and heal the others and walk out on Matt in the middle of one of his patented speeches. And that that's just... <laughs> straight Nynaeve all over. And I think my only complaint about that section is that we don't get it from Nynaeve's POV, right? Like, mm. she's she's the star of the section, but otherwise, it's fun, it works, it moves the plot forward. This was a section to wrap up something that we couldn't quite do from Egwene's POV is kind of how I viewed it. Well, and, and in the moment, it felt like, oh, good, we're going to go wrap up the Black Gaja thing now, too. Mm -hmm. Like, we got to move quickly through this. And then it was like, oh, no, that's that's book four business, it would appear, or yeah. book four, five, six business. So um, so we didn't get a resolution to that. But to have Nynaeve, like, like you say, kind of straight up all business still working on this very serious problem yeah. works and is fun. Absolutely. Perrin is a good character who chases a falcon around through dreams with his wolf friends telling him he's there too strongly. I don't have notes. It, it was a fun ride. I think it was, it, to me, if Rand is the kind of most important part of this section, he gets the beginning and the ending, and then we get kind of the three kind of side sections in between, this was the one that worked the best for me, if only because I think it was tied into the love story that had been developed pretty well over the previous, you know, 10, 15 Perrin and Fayil chapters. Is, is that your takeaway as well, or were you kind of less taken by this section because I'm in love with Perrin? No, I think that was my takeaway. The moment you referenced, although you butchered it in your summary, where she says, my blacksmith. Oh, yeah, my blacksmith. Right? I, That's what so, she says. Yeah. I, I, I'm used to, <laughs> to my wolf being like a thing at some point, eventually, probably. <laughs> my bad. But it felt good that she used that name again, um, yeah. but it was not dismissive. It was mm -hmm. actually, now I've learned what being a blacksmith means, and I've learned who you are, and now I'm using that as a compliment because that's the side of you I love and the one I want to be with. So yeah. sweet romance, kissy kissy, uh, beautiful. Now let's get to the stabbing. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything else to say about that. I, I guess the only <laughs> other thing is, I think you're exactly right to point out my blacksmith being kind of touching instead of dismissive. The other piece that really stood out to me is at the beginning of this section, Perrin is referring to Fayil as Fayil in the narration. And that is just a stark change mm. from everything before. Um, so then we're back to Rand and stuff happens, right? He stabs Baelzaman in the heart. He uses Kalendor to walk through Teleron Riode and then back into the real world without fully knowing what he's doing. Like, this is what we've been waiting for. If we were talking about this book was slow, here's the fast. Did it did it do it for you? Uh, yeah, it felt uh, like this was the level up, right? I mean, what yeah. better D&D &D or video game thing than picking up a weapon that gives you new abilities and you're suddenly there? Um, I have in my notes, it was it was related to the first part and this part where it's like, there's just this crazy, like, I, I called it a double doubling where it's like, yeah. we are in multiple planes in this reality and then across time as well, both in the sense of this is Lewis Theron back and is is the cycle renewed. And then it's like, then we're going across dimensions too. So we can have the stone across all these places. And um, it's kind of crazy. And yet I would not say I, I would be somewhere in the middle. I did not get lost in it, which I think is a huge credit to Robert Jordan, but I also didn't find it particularly compelling. And I think that's because it starts to feel like nothing has consequence when we just have so many realities. And I mean, I think the references in the book too, where it's like, oh, it's the same thing that's happened the last couple times yeah. we've been around on these books. Yeah. And so it's hard to know like, oh, well, this time it matters. And there are some hints of that next um, 
next chapter, but yes. Totally. Uh, first off, I think I'm hearing you correctly, but I just want to make sure the word lose therein does not have an I in it. Yes. Uh, second, um, I think that for me, the, the, the thing that you're identifying here is exactly right. It's that this book ends exactly the same as book one and book two, but in a different place, right? In all three of those books, Rand goes to the important place that is either the name of the book or the thing that we've been referencing for the entire book. And then he takes a sword made of fire that he either makes himself or doesn't know how it gets made or is already hanging in the sky there. And then he battles Baelzaman and stabs him through the heart and the wound on his side bleeds. That that's the story. It's happened three times in a row. And so I, I think there's a there's a part of me that this is the moment where I'm like, OK, this is getting a little repetitive now. And then the thing that lets me out of it is at the end of this chapter, there's a body which hasn't happened before. And then I don't think this is a real spoiler. In the next chapter, we get confirmation. The fact that there was a body means that we saw someone die. And as we always talk about with like movies and TVs, like show me the body, Robert Jordan showed you the body, right? It actually died. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that means that we now have, you know, I guess nine more mainline books or no, even more than that, a bunch more books. And they're not all going to be about battling Baal Zaman in the sky. I hope. Um, yeah, so I guess where my head is stuck is on, you know, we talked before about um, the, I, I think I referenced the Green Knight and um, the Dark Tower books from Stephen King, how it's like when you get these stories where you're in a recursive loop and uh, spoiler free, but L Loki just did this really nicely, okay. but you get into a recursive loop and um, the challenge becomes what do you do different to break the loop and yeah so i'm thinking again about okay so it was the body so what is the difference that causes there to be a body so to me is that calendar is it you know i i liked the the heron marked blade and so yeah. I, it was kind of sad to be like oh well maybe we're leaving that behind because it is a part of um of uh rand's father's heritage like that side of yeah. rand as well um, and it felt like the sword was a surprise back in the first book, as I recall, that yeah. they were that Alzaman was really not expecting it. And so here it's like, well, this is the sword of prophecy, what was written in prophecy indeed. And so there's no surprises here. And yet this is the one that seems to come to the other out the other outcome. So all that is the big mush in my head. And if I'm not being yeah. particularly articulate, it's just like I, I want to straighten that all out. But I don't think I'm supposed to be able to yet. I think I'm, I'm going to toot my own horn and say these are the questions I'm supposed to be asking, but uh, won't get answers to yet. And I think that's exactly what Robert Jordan kind of wants to be doing at the end of this book. It seems more than either of the other two. It felt like the last two books had really kind of clean endings where it was like, here's all of the threads, I'm wrapping them up, and then we'll set up what's coming next. This feels like he's as much muddying the water as he is resolving in this conclusion, right? He's doing a lot of things that we've seen before, but in ways that are just enough different to start asking exactly those questions that you are asking and that I will refuse to answer steadfastly ever on this show. Uh, I think if if that is the end of the big epic conclusion, then we need to dive into the little chapter that wraps up after it. Did you have any last thoughts on the entirety of what is written in prophecy? Uh, let's save it for next week, because I think uh, anything yeah. else I could say is kind of thinking about it as the climax to the book. And we'll, again, deal with everything all together next week. So take us into chapter 56, uh, a little chapter called People of the Dragon, which um, I will say I expected very little from. And there's actually kind of a cool big revelation in this. So go ahead, my liege. Uh, very interestingly, this chapter begins, first off, with me being called your liege, which I was not expecting <laughs> at all. Uh, but second, with a POV-free piece of narration, where we hear that people have been dreaming of Rand battling Baal Zaman and taking Kalandor, and they wake to see the dragon banner above 
above the stone, know that he is the actual dragon, and begin chanting Althor the dragon, Althor the dragon. We then go to Matt's and, POV. And, and the who's down in Whoville, the tall and the small, <laughs> right? It had that feel to it. it uh, sorry, go ahead. Absolutely did. Uh, Matt <laughs> is then shaking his head as he hears the chanting below. Uh, the Aiel and the High Lords have been following Rand around since he declared himself. We learned that there are about 200 Aiel in the stone. They lost about a third of their numbers, but either killed or captured 10 times that many. Um, Ruark, who is the clan chief of one of the Aiel clans, is reading in the area. Uh, we learned that Matt recently flirted with Avienda and it did not go well and that he hasn't been able to separate Bane and Chiad to be able to flirt with them at all. Um, everyone seems to have been surprised to hear that Perrin is in tier and that he has, quote, a companion. Um, Moraine is uh, talking with the girls as well as Matt and reveals this and then says that she will see to him soon. But first, Moraine needs to show them something that she has found. She has found a seal to the Dark One's prison. This time it is intact, unlike all of the previous times when the seals have been broken. Um, Nynaeve um, then starts to kind of ask why uh, that matters and what is going on. They need to track down the Black Aja. And then Matt starts to ask whether he and the girls are the people of the dragon. He doesn't understand how the prophecy has come true without that portion of it. And at this part, Ru at this point, Ruark says that men of the Aiel who want to be clan chiefs go to Roydian, and there they are marked with a dragon on their arm, and he reveals it to them. I mean, he says that the Aiel are known only to the clan chiefs as the people of the dragon. Dragon. Moraine is surprised by this, and uh, Matt says at least he's glad that it's done, and the girls seem to say, no, we still need to track down the Black Aja and the Forsaken, but Moraine then steps in and says, no, the Dark One has not been defeated. We don't just have kind of the wrap-up left to do. Uh, the Dark One who was supposedly killed by Rand left a body. The Dark One would never do that. Um, this must be someone who was impersonating the Dark One as Baal Zaman, at which point Egwene, as I noted in my notes remembers chapter 21 um, and there was a poem there that linked Ishamel to Baalzaman that seems to be who has been using this moniker another one of the forsaken um, Moraine seems to accept this theory although she does seem to have some doubts and at this point Berylaine the first of Mayenne arrives she has a message um, which was given to her um, and is delivered to Moraine and then she tells Ruark that she is planning to see Rand that night before she leaves um, Moraine then reads the letter which was delivered to her. It says Luz Theron is mine and is signed Lanfear. Um, and Matt says that they can count on him when Moraine asks whether he will help them in facing down the Forsaken. But as he does so, he is planning to run. Then we get a nice pretty little bit of prophecy and we end book three of The Wheel of Time. Like you said, this is a quick chapter. I think it felt like it was supposed to be there just to wrap up all the little loose ends. And then it kind of dangles a couple of really nice hints of what is to come. What stood out to you? Because this is the kind of chapter where I think each reader will have a different major takeaway. And, I, and I'm not sure which reader you are here. Uh, so what comes to mind is I think it's the end of the Two Towers movie, although it might be like a particular edition of it, where it's like Frodo and Sam are like, uh, you know, they have a very good character moment. I think this is after Sam's kind of speech that gets quoted all the time. And then, oh, yeah, uh, they're talking about the stories. That's right. The, the stories that get told. And Frodo looks deep in his eyes and said, Frodo wouldn't have made it far without his Sam. And it's like a happy moment. And then you just kind of pan up and they show Mount Doom in the far distance and the dragons yeah. and the Nazgul. And you're like, oh, right. Like, there's still a lot to go on. This very much felt like the same spirit. It's like, you know, yep, the Ewoks are singing. Everything's great. But let's pan up and remember, we still have a whole lot of problems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's very clear to to our discussion tonight that, you know, Robert Jer Jordan knew exactly that he was going to keep going by now and was going to have to have a lot of, of uh, material built in for the next one. And so I think then this just becomes a series of of dangling threads. The yeah. Black Aja are still out there. Um, the fact that Baalzaman is not gone is still out there. And then yeah. um, the... Uh, 
the note from Lanfear. I'm just summarizing your summary now for people who tuned out. And uh, but I would say the most compelling part to me is the fact that, you know, I think I'd been asking how the Aiel are going to fit into all this. And to me, that's the revelation that matters here. It's like, oh, this is going to be Rand's army is kind of how I took that sign. Like this is going to be they are the people of the dragon. They are the ones of prophecy. They're going to follow along. Um, and yeah. he, you know, so many prophecies are like the one that can unite the clans in different world yeah. mythologies. And it feels like that is what his prophecy is becoming, that he can pull together these factions that have warred for a long time and hopefully save the realm. But we'll see. Yeah. And I think that we are now kind of bordering dangerously on another thing we were going to talk about next week in the episode wrap-up. But I will note, the way that this revelation comes about is Ruark kind of raises his sleeve and shows that his arm has been marked with a dragon. I will note that uh, we have gotten a prophecy about Rand that twice and twice he shall be marked. Once the heron and twice the heron we have already gotten, but the other two marks are once the dragon and twice the dragon. So we may be looking at Rand having an even more direct connection to this story that Ruark is giving about how the men are marked with the dragon than we maybe would have considered before. Uh, and you referenced this in the first part of the episode where we were talking about the book cover. It feels a little Dune, too. Uh, yeah. You know, like you pointed out the the. Uh, Gosh, I'm not going to remember the, but, but the people native to the planet in Dune look like how the Aiel are put on there. Yeah. And what is that except the story of a messiah that you know unites the the peoples, uh, in some ways. I and don't then, know. Dune's Dune's tough. And then it goes horribly, <laughs> horribly wrong in Dune. Like if you don't yeah. stop at that first book, it is not a happy story that uh, the Atreides <laughs> are 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 you know positive at the end yeah. of that book i don't want to spoil a movie that hasn't come out yet even though the book is like 30 years old um i guess then if we're going to take this i guess somewhat chronologically i would break this section of the book into matt hijinks and then reveals and so in the matt hijinks i'm just mad robert jordan did not give us matt hitting on avienda and avienda threatening to kill him that sounds like an amazing <laughs> scene that should have been in this mm. book i agreed and the matt hijinks are fun um, yeah. um who's driving matt hard to tell <laughs> right as always yeah. but but he's fun he's got his swagger on and that's a lot of fun so then I guess what I'm curious about is we had talked in the previous chapter about Moraine and her kind of new persona, right? Showing up and just like all guns blazing, let's do this thing. In this chapter, we get a, a very different look at Moraine than I think we've gotten all book. She, number one, admits she doesn't know things, which is a very rare look for Moraine. Um, she seems to be almost like getting the opinions of the the three other women, um, Egwene, Elaine, and Nynaeve, and seems to kind of be respecting their choices as they're talking about what they're going to do with the Black Aja. And then it's also worth noting, she is just, she, she's not domineering. She's not taking control of this conversation mm. in a way that she does does many others and so i think she is the character who stood out the most to me right if this is a matt pov chapter the matt we get is exactly what i expect but the moraine we get is not what i was expecting even as of like five pages ago it's interesting because so much of her language and tone actually made before you started talking essentially i'm like oh he's gonna talk about how she's not the one from last chapter she's coming back to normal and i think what you're saying is she's not either of those old to right. Moraine. She's someone new. And I think you've convinced me in the the evidence you just laid out. But it does feel, other than the power dynamic kind of bundle of things, she yeah. feels not like dangerous, not on the edge yeah. of the knife. Or if she is, she's kind of safely back on the, the side of the light. Yeah. And so um, those other revelations, you know, kind of make me feel like she's just earned respect for all these characters. Um, you know, she's... Yeah especially the women they've kind of earned their place in the conversation with her now and the less and less she knows the less she can expect the more she's going to need the others to help her so i think you know being a little diplomatic in those ways is also important 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's something that you said there, too, about her kind of being settled that I think makes sense, right? This entire book, she's been really off kilter. And so now the fact that she is kind of for the first time we've seen no longer spinning on an axis that she's not used to, like, I think you're right to highlight that that makes a really big difference for that character. Um, I then just kind of want to give Egwene her flowers, like, She's the one who figured out the Ishamel Beelzeman puzzle that I think at this point in the book, you maybe could have figured it out if you were Sherlock Holmes. But this is one of those where Robert Jordan puts all the clues in front of you and never puts them together until after another character has done so. What was your thought about this kind of reveal that Beelzeman is the big scary forsaken, but all along he was just a forsaken, not the dark one in flesh? I'm not positive I understand it. So let me tell you what I think it is and you're yeah. going to confirm or deny it. So since book one, we've been seeing Baalzaman in dreams and in these kind of end of book conflicts. Yeah. But what has just been revealed is that we have actually never seen Baalzaman. We have seen Ishmael pretending to be Baalzaman. Two tiny corrections, although for the most part, that is okay. exactly right. The first is just the name Ishamel, not Ishmael. Ishamel, uh, okay. The second is that I want to be very careful about how we use the word Beelzebub. Beelzebub is the Trollic name for the Dark One. So I think a better way of phrasing what you have just said is to say that Ishamel using the name Beelzeman pretended to be the dark one, but actually wasn't. The reason I'm making that distinction is because I don't think the Dark One actually uses the word Beelzeman to refer to themselves. I don't think now that Ishamel is no longer using that title, that that's going to be the name that we give to the Dark One for the most part. It will either be the Dark One or Shaitan. Beelzeman is primarily the name that Ishamel was using to pretend to be the Dark One. So we have a, what we're supposed to walk away from is that we've never met the true dark one. That is correct. Across these three, we've killed a lesser henchman. The princess is not in this castle and we're uh, going to go find. <laughs> yes, yeah. that is exactly right. Um, I will note uh, in chapter 21, the, the chapter where Egwene and Varen are having a conversation about the prophecy that mentions Ishamel and um, and. Beelzeman together. Uh, that prophecy also kind of vaguely, or Varen references in that discussion, the idea that Ishamel was kind of partially free all of the time, or maybe some of the time. And so I think the story is basically that even like, I think at the like first time we meet Moraine, she tells a story about Beelzeman in the Trolloc Wars. And even that far back, it may have been Ishamel using that name. Okay, and then fit in for me, the Dark One is being contained by the seals, which are Correct. brought up again here. Yeah. And we have now encountered three that are broken and this one is still intact i believe that is correct yes so of the seven seals of the dark one's prison three are broken and have been found one is intact and has been found and there are three remaining hopefully intact but location unknown seals of the dark one's prison and so that fits with what we are talking about just prior to this which is the dark one is probably still imprisoned exactly but Baalzaman used his power to try to start freeing the Dark One, which again is Ish Ishamel, um, exactly. and not yep. not the Dark One himself. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Uh -oh. yeah. Okay. Glad we wrapped and that up. I need a nap. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if you think that's bad, wait until we have to really break down Rand's family tree. The fun days are coming. Okay. Um, if right. that is kind of our big takeaway from the you know big Baalzaman reveal, we kind of get this kind of new big piece of information. Um, the only other thing that then stands out to me in you know this section is that we get a very brief introduction of a new character, uh, Barrelane 
uh, the first of Mayenne arrives. She seems stuck up. She seems insistent that she will be a part of Rand's life. And then she delivers Lanfear's letter, which seems to suggest that she has already encountered some really dark forces, even if it was only in passing. Um, did she as a character stand out to you or did uh, Lanfear's letter or the reaction that Moraine had stand out at all? I guess this is the everything but the last prophecy question. Anything in this last section of the book? I mean, I'm going to channel my inner Lucille Bluth and say, I don't make eye contact with the help. So I just <laughs> just thought it was a, a messenger <laughs> who was just dropping something off. So she didn't really stand out to me at all. But uh, OK, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to see some more. Yeah. In that case, I think all that we've got left and it was written that no hand but his should wield the sword that held in the stone. But he did draw it out like fire in his hand and his glory did burn the world. Thus did it begin. Thus do we sing his rebirth. Thus do we sing the beginning. That's that's just good prophecy. I liked it. Yeah, it is, that's good f prophecy. That's fun prophecy. And, you know, in a meta context, book three is a time people would want to check out. And that makes yeah. you want to pick up book four and continue on this journey. So, and that that matters in publishing, right? You yeah. got to keep people invested and, and keep it moving along. So very good bit of prophecy. Uh, I will just note one additional thing here, uh, which is the fact that we do get the citation for this prophecy. The citation references that this was a citation from the fourth age, you may remember from book one that we are in the third age. So this is a prophecy that was quoted from after the series has ended. Hmm. And with that, I think we wrap up the third book of the Wheel of Time. I know we're not doing a ton of like end of book discussion here. We're going to be doing that next week. But any last thoughts on these two chapters before we say goodbye and hello to a new book, which is honestly much better than this one? Uh, yeah, it again, we'll save a lot of what I, eh, I mean, I'm actually going to rethink what I was going to say. It, you can tell we're playing a new game where we're like, well, what do I say? What I, uh, I, I have some general thoughts, uh, it, but it's kind of more towards like rating this and ranking our book so far. And I, I think that all fits better next week. So let's just say again, um, next week, uh, a special through the glass columns, you can join us without reading anything else. Uh, you can just continue on, uh, and hopefully that helps you get your holiday shopping done and not be, uh, attached to us so next week we'll just do a wrap-up discussion of this book and kind of how we're feeling uh before then or after then or maybe before and after if you send it to us while we haven't yet recorded but uh have uh or have recorded but haven't posted tell us your thoughts uh respond to some of our uh instagram posts and just say how you're feeling at the end of this journey and how things are working with you um we always appreciate feedback especially when it really makes me actually check that account and, and check in with you all uh, um, and we will continue that journey on. Tyler, when are we going to do that? So uh, the next time that we will be actually discussing chapters rather than just our overall thoughts and feelings about the book will be on Wednesday, January 3rd of 2024. And saying 2024 brings me pain. So I'm doing it for you. It's, it's horrible that we are that far into the Gregorian calendar. On January 3rd, however, I will note we are only reading a single chapter from The Shadow Rising. So if you are not able to listen to our next episode or just feel like it's not worth it without any reading, we totally understand. Please rejoin us for just chapter one of The Shadow Rising when we begin a book that is why I love this series. Next time, Through the Glass Columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey.
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.